CGM 99.1 FM programming is hosted almost exclusively by community volunteers. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are that of the host and their guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of CJAM FM. For more information and resources, visit our website at cjam.ca. Hi, I'm Samantha, a past guest on CJAM's HandyLink. You're listening to HandyLink on CJAM 99.1 FM, reaching high ground in Windsor, Detroit. Sponsored by the Italian-Canadian Handy Capable Association, an organization that provides recreational and athletic opportunities for individuals with disabilities in Windsor-Essex. For more information, check out ICHA on Facebook. I'm your host, Cam Wells. This first segment, my friends, is a post-dated interview, so some of the events referred to may already have passed. In this segment of our show, Karen Mahar will be telling us a little bit about Camp Sundown. So, can you tell me a little bit about Camp Sundown? Um, Camp Sundown was started in 1996. That was our first year. And we invited families from all over the world. It was the first time XP patients had gotten together with families and started to share support and friendships. It was also kind of the beginning of internet in people's homes. So it was a really neat way for us to be able to connect with people all over the world with such a rare population. Um, it was also a way for us to connect with doctors who there weren't a whole lot that specialized in this disease because of the rare population. So we've been doing this for 27 years, I think. How does XP typically affect a person? A person is born with XP from having um, both parents having a genetic um, chromosomal situation. Both parents have to have the same exact defect in the genes in order for a child to be born with it. And usually it presents early with a lot of freckling, what would be abnormal freckling for a small child, and severe sensitivity to just basic lighting, regular, even incandescent bulbs back in the day when they were high voltage, like 100 watts, could burn a child with XP. But trips in the sunlight would just be excruciatingly painful for children. They'd scream and um, they were burning underneath their skin before their skin actually became red and blistered, but just real severe sensitivity to ultraviolet radiation. So how many people are affected, if you know offhand, with the condition? It's hard to tell worldwide. Um, In the U.S., statistically, they say there should be about 150. We know of about 128. That number comes and goes every year, as you can imagine. A couple people pass, a couple new people are diagnosed, but it stays around 128. Um, We know that in some countries, like Japan, where there tends to be more relationships between um, the same race, 
of Japanese marrying Japanese and having Japanese babies, that gene seems to perpetuate a lot more. And there's eight different types of XP, which are more prevalent in different areas of the world based on whether or not they intermarry or, I don't know, that's an awkward conversation. <laughs> Sounds it. But really, numbers-wise, there's a few thousand in the world. So how has Camp Sundown grown over the years? You mentioned you've been doing this for over two and a half decades, so... Uh... What are some of the biggest changes? Uh, we went through different phases. Um, we tried to do a teens-only week where the parents stayed home and let their, their teenagers come. We didn't like that one very much. We have done mostly family camps where a whole entire family, because anyone with a rare condition in a family gets a lot of support, and they get that support from their immediate nuclear family. So the whole family comes as a group, and we find that um, over time we found that some of the siblings needed additional support that they weren't receiving because nobody really else could understand what they were going through as a sibling of an XP child, except other siblings of XP children. So we found a lot of new connections between family members that we weren't thinking of in the very beginning. We were thinking of only the XP kid who couldn't go outside and couldn't do a normal camp experience. But we found that it's, it's grown to be much more of a support system for everyone in the family at different levels. So um, we have tried being a nomad camp where we went to different hotels, different years, whoever would host us. And then we decided to build our own facility in 2003. And we found that that, that works out best. We figured out a way where kids could come out of their rooms and come right to a centralized place where there would be staff on. So their parents could keep sleeping if they need to, but that there would always be people in the center of the building so that kids could feel comfortable waking up and walking out into their main areas. So, how do you provide protection for such an extreme condition? If sunlight is having that kind of effect, uh, how do you provide a camp experience that uh, these, these kids, those affected, are actually able to get out and enjoy just life, you know? It, it's taken a lot of pre-thought to any place we go or anything that we do. But the building itself, the camp building, has um, UV-tinted windows with curtains and screens on top of that. When the kids are indoors all day, they're protected from the light. At nighttime, they walk outside, and it's a big open field. They can have horseback riding. They do ball games, do normal children's camp activities, but just at a different time of the day. When we go on field trips, we have to scout out the place ahead of time. We have light meters that we go and we check the lighting. We just ensure that any place we're going to go is going to be safe for them to be in. And we've had such a good response from community people. If we go to visit a farm or a, I'm trying to think, different parks and things, the community is real good about looking at our needs and adapting to them, making sure things are safe for the kids so they can have a good time. So in your time with Camp Sundown, has there been any success story that stands out for you? I think there's been lots of success stories, and I think... Um, what I'd see is we watch a lot of the kids return year after year. So we see a lot of growth and I think we see a growth of self-esteem, a growth of personal power. Like they come back each year and they feel stronger and more confident in themselves. And I don't want to make Camp Sundown sound like that gets all the credit, but I think it gives them some boost in that. I also see that not just the returning families, because that I think shows credit to Camp Sundown, but the Kids that come back after work, after they're done with high school, they're supposed to not come back and leave room for new people. But they come back anyway, but they come back as counselors and they volunteer their summers to be at camp. 
And I think that's a real, I, I personally take as, as a pat on the back that people want to come back and volunteer when they don't have to. And they enjoyed it so much. They want to share that experience. They want to help in the experience. I think that in itself is a big success story. So I'd imagine that uh, this being such a rare condition for a lot of these kids, meeting somebody like them for the first time sort of grows their world a little bit. Absolutely. And I think it, it's very interesting because the first few years, this was quite a phenomenon to us. We expected everybody to come and start talking about XP and talking about their lives and how awful it was and how terrible it was to stay inside all day when everybody else was out. But what we found was that was no longer conversation at all. Since everybody had that bottom base of not being able to go out in sunlight, that was not part of the conversation. It moved immediately to what do you like to do? What do you like to eat? More specific individual and cultural things that are part of any normal kid's development, social development. They didn't have to talk about their disabilities. They talked about the things they like. So if you could send any message to the community about the need for programs like this to allow XP patients to have those, quote, normal experiences, what would you say? I think over the years I've grown to realize that because this was very personal to me, our daughter has this, it's, it was a personal um, journey and a personal fight to ensure that she had equal rights to activities and school and things that were basic to everybody else. But in that, I've seen so many other conditions that are similar, very, very rare in that way, where I think there's a need for all those specialty camps. There's there's kids that can't sweat, so they don't get enough um, cooling, body cooling. They need their own camp. They have special things that they need for themselves to make them feel as normal as possible. I think what it is for Camp Sundown is we provide that for kids who can't be in sunlight. But there are so many people with rare conditions that there almost needs to be specialized camps for each one of those. Like, it is important. It is important socially. It's important physically, psychologically. I think it's vital to the growing up normally of children. Like, thank you for taking the time out to do this. But if you could Sorry, it took so long. <laughs> You can stay on the line for a sec. That'd be great. Sure, sure. Thanks, Cameron. Of course. In this segment of our show, Jeff Sanders will be telling us a little bit about his work with Challenger Baseball. So, can you tell me a bit about your work with Challenger Baseball? For sure. I have, uh, let's see here, we're in Cloverdale. That's the name of the association that sponsors our program. Uh, it's out here. It's a suburb of, of Vancouver. We've done seven seasons here, uh, but before this year where we played, we had two years where we had no on-field activity because of COVID restrictions. So altogether, we've had five seasons of in-person play. I began the program, so seven years ago, uh, 2016, I guess, was our first year, after a request from our association to bring this program into the umbrella. So, I've done lots with Cloverdale, so I have lots of experience with volunteering and coaching and all that stuff. And because I have a son that's in the special needs category, they thought maybe I would be probably a good person to you know, run this program if we brought it in. So they approached me the year before. I spent a year sort of getting uh, knowledge and preparation for it because I wasn't sure what I was in for. That first season, I was able to recruit 
I think we had 17 people register of the 17, I think 16 would count, had come out. The next year, uh, we doubled that to 35, then we went to 50, then to 60. So we kept growing without having to put a lot of effort out into recruiting players. I think word of mouth was really good for you know, encouraging others to get involved. The big challenge with us was getting buddies. So in the the way the program is structured, we have a lot of leeway to kind of create it however we want on the field. But we try to bring in able-bodied buddies to be matched up with each child or player so that they have help if they need with something as far as like maintaining their mobility or swinging a bat, mostly to give them companionship and love. And that was where the challenge really was because going into the high schools uh, in particular, uh, I wasn't getting any sort of, uh, nobody in leadership there was embracing it to kind of put the word out. So I ended up, uh, yeah, doing recruiting through our local newspaper and yeah, we ended up getting just the right amount of buddies for each of our seasons. And then this year, uh, after a two-year absence, I thought I'd have to go back to the grassroots and try and guess, recruit everybody all over again. But one email out, and I ended up getting something close to 70 people sign up uh, right away. So they were definitely eager to get back and get involved. It's a program that made a, has made a big difference in our community. How does the sport differ from the able-bodied equivalent? Uh... How was Challenger Baseball unique? Yeah, so if, you're, if your child can't participate under the conventional structure of baseball, what we do, and I think most programs do, is they find a way to just adapt wherever their level is to be part of this, this group effort. So because the range of disabilities is, is quite broad, There'll be some kids that may be autistic, but have really high functioning capabilities. And so they can swing the bat, they can catch a ball, they know how to have conversations and they understand. And then you have people who, you know, are nonverbal, they're in a wheelchair, they have a lot of limits with their, uh, just for their, their motor skills. But what we end up doing is creating for them uh, just when they're involved, something that just makes it work for them and them only. So in our particular, so the way that we run our program and with so many people, we have three stations. So we have a game in the infield. We have a hitting station out in left field, and then we have an activities section out in right field. And then we rotate every 20 minutes or so. And based on a, a player's ability, we let them kind of do whatever they want. Uh, and in a lot of cases, uh, they're there just to hit a home run every single time or uh, just to go one base uh, and enjoy that experience. And so under the conventional structure of baseball, what you have is a pitcher, a batter, you have your fielders. We know how it goes, three up, three down. We don't play like that. You you don't keep score, but everybody thinks they're they're playing in the major leagues and uh, we can go base to base or all the way around. We get them to hit balls with their buddies out in the in left field. So they make games for them out there. And then in our activities area, they, they play with a parachute. They play with other 
you know, they do run other games so that they can just not have everything kind of stale while they're waiting their turn to get up to bat or to do something. They're, they're not sitting around very often or much at all. So we just kind of keep it moving and keep them entertained. We give them some exercise. And the big thing uh, in a lot of cases uh, is that the parents for really the only time of their week get to sit in the stands and watch their kids play and they don't have to be the ones that are, are stimulating them. And they see them with friends and, uh, it, it, the impact is it, you just can't measure it until you're there. So I guess that's kind of the difference between our, our conventional baseball versus challenger. So in your time doing this work, has there been any success moment that stands out for you? Well, the biggest learning piece that came on my first season was to really recognize, and by the way, I'm speaking with as a dad of somebody who is in that special needs you know, category, was to recognize that these, our kids, the ones that were playing, their social contact is really limited. Now we sort of knew that, but we try to find activities or ways to stimulate our kids. What this program did is create a network for these, these players to have their peers to be around, to like... I'll give you an example. I had a, a buddy who, at our local high school, he's one of the football stars. He was getting recognized nationally. He was going to these these showcases and all this stuff. He was paired up with a, uh, a player who actually went to his high school, but he never saw him because the special needs you know students were in a particular wing and they didn't integrate into the population. So he started going and visiting him just to say hi. And as it turned out, he ended up making friends with all of these other people in that wing that he never even knew he had anything in common with because he never got to see them. And they became friends. He would go out for dinner with his player. He would, you know, chat with him. And when we recognized that, we saw the, the true value of having other peers, especially teenagers, to connect with these other teenagers because... They, they're interested in things like music and, and and social media and television and things that all teenagers are. And it really gave them a chance to connect. <clears throat> and I can't, you know, unless you're one of these parents that got to see this change in their child's life by having somebody that they can connect with and having that opportunity, <clears throat> the scope of what difference it made in these in these families lives is just immeasurable so that would be the biggest thing that i noticed uh off the bat and, and ever since then we've tried to make sure that those relationships are always at, at the center or, or as has as much priority as we can give them when they come to the field and play and that's just one of many success stories i mean we had a boy had a, a, a his 16th birthday <clears throat> that was the first birthday party he ever had because he never used to have he never had friends he could invite uh cam i can tell you like these types of stories like cascade season after season and we we just see the value that it brings to these families and it's all interrelational that's that's the biggest thing that comes out of this program like thank you for taking the time out to do this but if you can stay on the line for a sec that'd be great yeah, i'm here you got Handy Link will be right back after these commercial messages.
so stay tuned. Hey you. Yes you. Thanks for listening to the station. CJM is a nonprofit organization dedicated to our community and you, the listener. We are able to operate because of the funds raised by our communities, but this is often not enough. We are asking for your support, which you could do by contacting our federal member of parliament. Call or write and ask them to support the development of a community broadcasting fund and extend the local journalism initiative. Learn more at ncra.ca slash help. That's ncra.ca slash help. Thank you once again for your support. Welcome back to HandyLink, sponsored by the Italian-Canadian Handy Capable Association, an organization that provides recreational and athletic opportunities for individuals with disabilities in Windsor, Essex. For more information, check out ICHA on Facebook. I'm your host, Cam Wells. Earlier in our show, we heard a little bit about Challenger Baseball from Jeff Sandis, and we heard about Camp Sundown from Karen Mahar. In this segment of our show, Carla DeLimperio will be telling us a little bit about PMSF. Yeah, so I, my name is Carla DeLimperio, and I work for the Phelan McDermott Syndrome Foundation. I'm the family support specialist, so my, my primary role is working with our families and our network of volunteer reps. Um, our foundation was established in 2002, and so we're at um, 20 years, and it was started by families, by parents of individuals with Phelan McDermott's syndrome, um, Sue Lomez and um, Nick Essendelf, along with Dr. Katie Phelan and also Curtis Rogers. So there is this heart for families. That's a, a huge part of our mission and the work we do um, because we were founded by families to begin with. And the other kind of areas of focus and priorities of the foundation are um, advocacy and research. Um, we do have a scientific director on staff. And so, you know, she's always working on science and forwarding, you know, moving forward with the research and more of those like long term solutions for families. So how does the syndrome typically affect a person? The effects are... Um, really affect the individual's entire life in many ways. Um, so one of the hallmark issues with Phelan McDermott to start is low muscle tone or hypotonia. Um, it's a neurological manifestation. It's, I mean, it's a genetic syndrome, but it, it, it comes out in terms of neurological challenges and issues. So our population has um, cognitive impairments, um, there are issues with behavioral challenges, repetitive behaviors. Um, autism is, is part of the syndrome for many individuals. There are um, GI issues, and we're, we've been kind of exploring the link between those GI issues and the brain. Um, there's, our individuals can have seizures, um, lymphedema, and a variety of other medical issues, including kidney problems, um, vision problems. Many of our individuals with Phelan McDermott syndrome don't speak, um, don't have verbal language, or they have 
basic, basic verbal language. Um, so like my son, for example, is seven and he has no speech at all. Um, he uses a communication device to communicate and gestures, sounds, etc. So do you know offhand about how many people are affected by the syndrome? Yeah, so our latest numbers um, are about 3,100 worldwide. And thereabouts, half of those individuals are in the United States. So how do you go about reaching out to the families and the population affected by the syndrome itself? Um, well, the number that I just gave you is based on our membership. So the, the people come and they register with us, with our foundation, and become members of the foundation. And then we are able to um, support them and provide them with our family support model, which my focus with our families is in the United States. Um, but we do have global partners and regional reps across the world that our volunteers, the reps, and they work with families around the world as well. So um, I can speak mostly to what's happening in the United States with, with family support, but we have a process we just started recently um, to welcome our new members. It's a first 100 days process where um, I'm, I hold like a Zoom support group every month for the first three months after um, folks join our membership. And that's a really nice venue for families, for our new families to um, build community with one another and get some of their questions answered and just hear about what to expect and, and what their next steps should be that early on in diagnosis. So your time with the foundation, has there been any success moment that stands out for you? I started in um, my job in July, so I'm in a brand new position that was created as the foundation has grown to be able to support families. So I, I honestly think that the coming, getting to that point where the foundation is big enough to have um, someone in my position in family support is is a success moment in, in and of itself. Um, we are 90% donor funded. We we rely on donations. And so to get to that point of growth, to be able to have a, a full-time family support specialist position and be able to have someone working directly with families um, rather than our, our volunteers alone, um, who are incredible, but it's, it's volunteer, you know, it's part of what they do rather than a, a full-time focus. So to me, that feels like a really huge success moment for the foundation to even get to that point. So that being said, with this being a new position, do you have any steps in mind for things you'd like to do to support families going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think um, families want to connect with each other. That's that's the number one thing I hear from our families um, in terms of, you know, it's a very rare disease. So to find other families that share that diagnosis and have children with Phelan McDermott syndrome is huge. So I've I, I'm excited for families to have those opportunities. Um, we have a pretty big initiative coming up in 2023, focusing on supporting our families' mental health. And um, I kind of we've identified that that's an area where our caregivers don't often get that support that they need um, because caregiving is very challenging, um, especially when you you have a child who becomes an adult with. Um, that needs total care, as most of our individuals with Fallon McDermott syndrome do need total care. 
Um, so that that focus will be kind of shifting in 2023 to, to work on some mental health support for our families. And then um, we're also working on building out a resource toolkit, which is something our families have been asking for. So we're kind of looking through it uh, a couple of lenses. Um, it's going to be starting in the U.S. Um, as the focus, but going through state by state and having like a resource library for each state in terms of um, what's available from the state or how things might be different in the state you live in based on different, you know, like for Medicaid waivers, um, school support, things like that. And then the other lens would be through seasons of life with Phelan McDermott syndrome. So the needs of a family are very different when their child is in early intervention, like age zero to three versus say transition to adulthood. So we want to build out resources in those categories as well and have, um, a comprehensive resource library or toolkit for our families. I'd like to thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Sure, absolutely. Thank you. Of course. The young people of Camp Sundown, I can only imagine what a remarkable experience it would be meeting someone with the same condition for the first time. Some conditions being so rare start to think that you're the only one in the world who understands how you feel. It's not so. fact is, if it's affecting one person, it's affecting others. That sense of community can be a great source of strength. The realization that others have found a way of living with their condition, maybe even carving out a little happiness in this world. That's what it's all about, my friends. Just finding the best way live your life. This has been HandyLink. I'm your host, Cam Wells, reminding you we're all equal. So get on out there and have yourselves a good one. Something tells me you've earned it, folks. We'll see you next week.